Are you keeping notes on the Bible series so far? Do you know what book of the Bible we're on? What number, I should ask? We're making progress. We are in Philippians. We're in Colossians. <laughs> Last week in Philippians, we were reminded, and being found in appearance as a man, Christ Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God forever changed the fate of humanity, of every person that would ever live. My name is Joe Greenmore, and this morning it's my pleasure to study with you the book of Colossians and this theme of being raised with Christ. But I have a question as we begin. Have you ever done something so profound that it positively impacted people you never met? I know a few of you like that and some of the things that you've done in our community. And sometimes a word that we speak or an action that we take has far-ranging implications beyond what we may be able to witness or quantify. Consider the man who passed along a rumor that he heard at breakfast gathering. Feeling convicted about spreading the rumor, he sought advice from his spiritual director. Go, buy a bag of feathers, spread them around town, empty the bag from the highest point, and then go and collect all the feathers. The director advised, well, that would be impossible, thought the man to himself, and slowly began to realize the power of his words. Just as he could never hope to reclaim every feather spread from a bag, so conversations would carry his words far beyond hope of recovery. The power of words and actions can carry far and wide, which is why it's so important to speak and act in ways that give grace and show evidence of God's love. Whether for good or ill, our actions and our way of life leave a lasting impression. Such was the case with Paul's ministry in Ephesus. This is a great map because it shows right near the center, Colossae, and then over to the left there, Ephesus on the coast. It was so effective that his ministry reached all the way to Colossae and led to the establishment of a church there without Paul ever having visited the city. Instead, Epaphras, one of Paul's companions and a native of Colossae, as we learn in chapter 1, verse 7, traveled back to his hometown and established a church there after having been trained by Paul to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Who are you training? What's the lesson that you're teaching them? What is the message that they're going to carry? If you could take a sentence from your life's primary values and put it next to Jesus' teachings, would you say that there's more in common, more at odds, or more room for growth and improvement? Now, imagine that your work was so impactful and so effective that someone you never spoke a word to heard the good news of God's love and came into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Praise God! That's what it means to be part of God's kingdom, to be raised with Christ. We benefit by God's grace from the labors of generations of believers whom we personally have never met, praying for generations to come. Meanwhile, our lives make an impact all around God's kingdom in the world and places that we may never actually set foot. We think about our participation in one great hour of sharing coming up next month or the world mission offering and the way that we give and the way that we bless travels to meet the needs of folks. 
In addition to sending funds, however, over the past year, travelers from Brewster Baptist Church have been all around the world to Egypt, Greece, Hungary, Israel, and in many more places besides. Imagine that God has blessed people in all the places where we've been without us having to live there or in many of our cases ever even visit there, touching lives in Maine, Pennsylvania, Dominican Republic, DRC Congo, Bulgaria. That's God's multiplying power. Just like the fish and the loaves, God can take what little we can do and miraculously use it to bless multitudes. Today's little book of Colossians, just four chapters long, is the last of the Go Eat Popcorn letters. Allow me to explain. When I was baptized back in 1993, the pastor who prepared me for baptism let me know that a group of folks in the church had come up with a handy acronym for those Ian's books. I had a hard time remembering what the order was. Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, Galatians. Go eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I haven't forgotten that acronym to this day. Colossians is both a connective letter and a distinctively unique one. For example, of the 155 verses in Ephesians, over 70, or almost half of them, contain echoes here in Colossians. On the other hand, Colossians has 28 words found nowhere else in the New Testament in Paul's writings, 34 found nowhere else in the New Testament. And the inquisitive mind will find several common themes between Colossians and the preceding letters. With Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. With Ephesians, the armor of God in Ephesians 6 and the working out of God's plans. And with Philippians, the abiding joy that comes from being raised in Christ and passes understanding the peace that this relationship gives us when we abide in Jesus Christ. Check out this story about abiding in Christ. On May 8, 1984, Benjamin M. Weir, veteran Presbyterian missionary to Lebanon, was kidnapped at gunpoint by Shiite Muslims in Beirut. During his 16-month-long imprisonment, he was constantly threatened with death. On his first night in captivity, one of his abductors came to him, telling him to face the wall, which he did. Now take your blindfold off and put this on. The man handed Benjamin a pair of ski goggles with the eye holes covered with thick plastic tape. They totally blocked out the light. In Weir's mind, the sun had set. He later wrote, In the twilight there came to my mind the hymn, Abide with me, fast falls the eventide. I felt vulnerable, hopeless, helpless, lonely. I felt tears warming my eyes and my face. Then I remembered the promise of Jesus. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Lord, I remember your promise, and I think it applies to me, too. I've done nothing to deserve it, but I receive it as a free gift. I need you. I need your assurance and guidance to be faithful to you in this situation. Teach me what I need to learn. Deliver me from this place and this captivity if it is your will. If it is not your will to set me free, help me to accept whatever is involved. Show me your gifts and enable me to recognize them as coming from you. Praise be to you. For the next 16 months, Benjamin Weir's hope and joy was found in the fact that he was not simply abiding in captivity. He was abiding in Christ, and thus able to bear much fruit. How often this old hymn comes to comfort us with the scripture-inspired words, Abide with me, fast falls the eventide, the darkness deepens, Lord, with me abide. 
When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. The literary setting for the letter to the Colossians was Paul writing from prison. Thinking of Paul's oft-captivity and our propensity toward being captivated by earthly things, we are reminded in this story of the need to look to Christ in all our circumstances, that in our suffering, in our chains, we are united with Christ and with Christ's followers, and that no matter the circumstance, for good or for ill, we abide with Christ. Paul might have told Epaphras, if anyone asks your credentials, tell them you work for the Lord Jesus Christ. And if they ask where you're from, tell them you've been sent on a mission from heaven. Because we are raised with Christ, like Colossians, we are both here and there. They were both in Christ and at Colossae. We are both in Christ and at this particular location in the world. The letter to the Colossians invites us to see our story not through a lens of human achievement and ability, but of Christ's supremacy, of all that he has accomplished. Because Christ is supreme, reigns with God, and has been raised from the dead, each of us through Christ experiences God's special favor, God's love, and the reality of being a new creation in Jesus. We are, and I said flavor, I'll get to that in just a bit. We are in the worlds of Paul's letter to a group of people whom we have never met, raised with Christ. Listen and hear these words from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. To seek means to set your heart. And we hear the encouragement, set your mind. So the exhortation is to set our hearts and our minds on heavenly things while we're living on the earth. Continuing in verses 12 through 17. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Isn't that a wonderful passage about what it means to live and abide in Christ? What a powerful message Paul shared with the Colossians. He shared with them the importance of being raised with Christ, to know it and to be it wanted them to know how important it is to recognize that they're not to live for themselves, but for Jesus' sake, and to partake in the gifts of resurrection living. In addition to the way that we think, our plans, our hopes, our dreams, our goals, and we all have them, and where we put our desires, and that is our earnest striving to achieve those goals, Paul encourages believers to put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Is that in your wardrobe? What does love look like when you put on love? The Colossian believers could do this by being filled with and bearing the fruit of the Spirit, living with humility, forgiving freely, doing as Christ did. 
And friends, we don't do this by our own power, but as we allow God's word to become rooted and planted in our hearts, and as we seek to live not for our glory, but for God's glory. Another primary concern in this letter is personal morality. That is, living up to the high moral standards that we inherit through Jesus. I will say that it's difficult, if not downright impossible, to live a morally flawless life. And we're not to examine our morals and our actions in order to lead to saving faith, but rather, as we heard earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, as a result of our saving faith and as part of the creative work of God. This story about humble growth and the virtuous life is told of Benjamin Franklin. It was about this time I conceived the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. Benjamin Franklin drew up a set of disciplines which he hoped would enable him to attain moral perfection. He drew up a list of 12 virtues which he considered essential to achieving the good life. He ruled each page with seven lines, and daily he appraised and recorded his behavior. During one conversation, Franklin shared his profile of excellence with an old Quaker who quietly informed him that he had omitted the virtue of humility. While that might be an example of how not to live in a humble way, Malcolm Gladwell shares a beautiful story. He actually just wrote and published it this past week. It's called What I Found at a Mennonite Wedding, and I encourage you to look it up and read it for yourself, but I'll give you the highlights. And the subtitle is When a Culture Abandons the Aggressive Pursuit of Status Markers, the Result is Unexpectedly Liberating. He writes, I went to a wedding this weekend back in my old hometown in southern Ontario. It was a lovely service on a beautiful Saturday afternoon. The reception was held on the lawn outside the church. The food was in large bowls along a long table, and all of us lined up, and we were served our lunch and then sat on the lawn for an afternoon picnic. Mennonites are a small evangelical community devoted to service, community, and reconciliation, which explains what I saw when I made my way up to the top of the food line. The people serving the meal were the wedding party. The bride's father gave us our picnic basket. The bride's sister made the pulled pork sandwiches. The groom did the coleslaw. And at the end of the line, the bride, who had put on an apron over her wedding dress, served the macaroni and cheese. The receiving line was turned into a service line. Hmm. I have three thoughts about this, says Gladwell. The first is a sociological observation. One of the core concepts in cross-cultural studies is power distance, which refers to the degree to which a culture values hierarchy. Places such as France and Saudi Arabia and Colombia have high power distance cultures. Authority and all its manifestations matters a lot in those places. A friend of mine who was the Middle East correspondent for a major newspaper once told me that he would sometimes call the Israeli prime minister's residence and the prime minister would pick up. Places like Australia and Israel are low power distance cultures. I guarantee you that the president of France does not answer his own phone. Mennonites are a famously low power distance people. I remember not long after we moved from England to the heavily Mennonite town where I grew up, my mother told me that from then on, my father would be known as Graham Gladwell, not Professor Gladwell. Mennonites don't do honorifics. I think sometimes we overlook how unexpectedly liberating it is when a culture abandons the aggressive pursuit of status markers. The relentless accumulation of awards, the fancy prefixes, the ostensibly displaying of prestigious alma maters, get a bit exhausting with time. 
And they not only serve to drive a wedge between the haves and the have-nots, far better to call Professor Gladwell Graham to build a relationship. And far better if you are a bride to have as your chief concern whether an apron will fit over your wedding dress. My second thought, this is a very beautiful example of a scriptural notion made real. Those of you who know your New Testament will know of the passage from the Gospel of John when Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. When the disciples look at Jesus with astonishment, he says to them, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. What he meant was that the highest function of leadership is to set a standard for sacrifice and humility. Thus does the bride, on the day of her life when she is the center of all the attention, put on an apron and serve her guests mac and cheese. Third thought, man, we could use a whole lot more of that these days. We could never attain to the wonderful gift of salvation all by ourselves, but it is because of God's salvation that we can attain to such wonderful works. But we're left with that question, what does it mean to be raised with Christ? What does that look like? How does that function? So let's take just a brief moment to scan through Colossians chapters 1 through 4 and see some of the connective words and themes across these four letters that resonate with what we've been hearing in Galatians, Ephesians, and Philippians too. In chapter 1, the words jump out, peace and faith and love, fruit, truth, faithful, love in the spirit, being fruitful in every good work. Sounds like the fruit of the spirit. Increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might. Sounds like the armor of God. According to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. He's delivered us from the power of darkness, sounds like that list before the fruit of the Spirit, into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Forgiveness, peace, wicked works, faith, grounded, steadfast, not moved. You can see the comparison. In chapter 2, conflict, flesh, encouraged, love, faith, raised with Him, grows with the increase that is from God. More about the fruit of the vine, the fruit of the Spirit. In chapter 3, in our sermon text, raised with Christ, set your mind on things above. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Then you also will appear with him in glory. Beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. Above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Husbands, love your wives. And in chapter 4, a faithful minister. And we hear about the beloved physician Luke as well. So in these chapters, we hear a lot of references and crossing of these themes of what it means to be raised with Christ. These examples, in addition to giving us a closer listen to the witness of Scripture, provide us with vivid reminders of what our duty, our calling, our daily life should look like. All of us who are baptized into Christ subsequently are raised to newness of life, a different way of living, a changed perspective. One of the things that I like to do when I'm baptizing new believers is to remind them that they are buried with Christ in his death and raised to newness of life. We just celebrated this in the baptisms two weeks ago, and again last Sunday when we welcomed our newest members. 
These are unique ways that we understand, celebrate, and participate in Jesus' resurrected living. I want to tell you a brief story about human potential. Think about what is the potential of my life? What can I accomplish? Achieving wholeness and holiness require traversing the difficult terrain of real life with all its challenges and crises. Even at the end of a lifetime of effort, we still need to be completed by the finishing touch of the divine artist. God will then bring to completion in us the eternal design of people destined to live wholeheartedly. While awaiting that unifying touch of divine grace, we pilgrims are called to follow the way of Jesus. And the Lord who walks with us assures us that we will always be blessed. The blessings sent our way may not always be enjoyable, but they will always nudge us forward in our efforts to love as God intended. A rabbi was once asked, what is a blessing? He prefaced his answer with a riddle involving the creation account in chapter 1 of Genesis. The riddle went this way. After finishing his work on each of the first five days, the Bible states, God saw that it was good. But God is not reported to have commented on the goodness of what he created on that sixth day when the human person was fashioned. What conclusion can you draw from that? asks the rabbi. Someone volunteered, we can conclude that the human person is not good. Possibly, the rabbi nodded, but that's not a likely explanation. He then went on to explain that the Hebrew word translated as good in Genesis is the word tov, which is better translated as complete, whole, lacking nothing. That is why, the rabbi contended, God did not declare the human person to be tov. Human beings are created incomplete. It is our life's vocation to collaborate with our creator in fulfilling the Christ potential in each of us. I think that's a beautiful reminder for us all. We're a work in progress. Like one of Michelangelo's greatest works, or like the artist himself, I'm still learning. If we have been raised with Christ, then it should show through our daily actions. Since we have been raised with Christ, then we should be looking to the matters of God's kingdom in our earthly living. And because our citizenship is in heaven, we can live daily with the confidence that we walk not by our own strength, but by God's provision and presence, which are always with us. Like Moses in the presence of God or Elijah and Jesus in the wilderness, we need to know God's nourishing, life-giving presence along life's journey. We recognize that what we eat and put into our bodies provides us with strength, health, sustenance, and nourishment. This is true both physically and spiritually. There's a marvelous story about Methuselah's diet, Methuselah, you will recall, was recorded in the early chapters of Genesis and lived for nearly a millennia. Methuselah ate what he found on his plate, and never, as people do now, did he note the amount of the calorie count he ate it because it was chow. He wasn't disturbed as at dinner he sat devouring a roast or a pie to think it was lacking in granular fat or a couple of vitamins shy. He cheerfully chewed each species of food unmindful of troubles or fears, lest his health might be hurt by some fancy dessert. And he lived over 900 years. Not only are we to bear the fruit of the Spirit, it's also important to mind our spiritual diet. Our state of mind goes a long way in determining our health. So let's feast on God's word regularly, daily. The Colossians were reminded, love is the bond of perfection, the key principle. Donald Gray Barnhouse shares this reflection in the fruit of the Spirit. Love is the key. Joy is love singing. Peace is love 
resting. Long-suffering is love enduring. Kindness is love's touch. Goodness is love's character. Faithfulness is love's habit. Gentleness is love's self-forgetfulness. Self-control is love holding the reins. Being raised with Christ should affect all of our senses and all of our being. The way that we think, what we desire, how we go about our day. Setting our minds on things above is a regular theme in Paul's letters. Just look at Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Or Ephesians 4, 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Or in today's scripture, Colossians 3, 1, set your minds on things above. He follows this up in his letter to the Colossians by saying, more than just thinking about heavenly things, eagerly desire heavenly living. So being raised with Christ affects all of our being, right? It should affect all five senses. Our vision, meaning that we see others differently, no longer looking from a worldly point of view. Our touch, guiding our interactions with gentleness. One person shared that we need four hugs a day for survival, eight hugs for maintenance, and 12 for growth. Have you met your daily hug quota? It affects our hearing. We actively listen for the still, small voice of God, like Elijah on the mountain. It affects our sense of smell because we're to spread the aroma, the sweet-smelling savor of Christ wherever we go, as we learn in 2 Corinthians. It affects our taste. Through our actions, people can taste and see that the Lord is good. That's the flavor that we're supposed to be part of. And it affects our relationships. Being raised with Christ means that we treat others differently, that there's something redemptive about the way that we live with patience, joy, love, and kindness. So do we see evidence of God's raised, redeemed, resurrection work in our lives? This little powerful letter of Colossians gives us timeless reminders of the importance of remembering resurrected kingdom living through Jesus Christ. Friends, far from being merely a suggestion or an act of the imagination, this describes a daily reality in which we are to live. So let's look to the Lord daily in prayer with thanksgiving. Being raised with Christ is about bearing the fruit of the Spirit and living in obedience to God's call on our lives, setting our minds on the things of heaven. Then it'll be like the song that I learned as a young person. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I invite you and I challenge you to be re-inspired by all that God is doing and has done in your life. Let us pray. Resurrecting God, call forth from your people a deep desire to live as citizens of heaven while we are in the world. Let love, the bond of perfection, guide everything we do and keep us humbly in your truth. We pray through the strong name of Jesus. Amen.